Welcome to this episode of the Plant Breeding Stories podcast, where I talk to leading lights in plant breeding, asking what they do, what makes them tick, and what fascinates them about the world of plants. I'm your host, Hannah Senior of PBS International, world leaders in pollination control. We design and produce specialist pollination bags and tents used by plant breeders and seed producers all around the world. And through this, I've been privileged to get a unique perspective on how plant breeding globally affects our diets, farming systems, and the environment. I'm excited to share a little of this with you as we meet some of the amazing people who make plant breeding their life's work. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Tifeng Shan, Associate Professor at the Institute of Oceanology at the Chinese Academy of Sciences. Whereas normally we talk about terrestrial plants, today we're talking about seaweed and focusing on brown algae, which technically are not plants at all. However, I think you'll agree it's a really fascinating conversation. We'll be getting to grips with the macroalgae life cycle and how directed breeding happens in an aquatic environment, the related goals of intellectual property protection and preventing genetic pollution of natural varieties of seaweed, and why the future for algae looks bright. Transcripts of this episode and all our podcasts are available at pbsinternational.com forward slash podcast. I hope you enjoy it. So to kick things off, would you like to introduce yourself? Thank you. My name is Tifeng. I'm from China. I have been working uh, in my institute for 12 years. My research field includes civet stock cultural collection and conservation, uh, genetic breeding, and population genetics. My career has been focusing on brown algae, especially kelp species. A place I like to start these conversations is to understand a bit about your background. So how did you grow up and how did that lead into what you're doing today? Okay. Uh, I was born in the city of Zibo, another city very near Qingdao in Shandong province in the north of China. I almost uh, never left uh, the city until I went to university. I studied biology in a normal university. Uh, So I was supposed to be a teacher, teaching biology in high school. But before my uh, graduation, I think I should try something more challenging. Uh, I would like to do scientific research. Fortunately, I passed the graduate entrance examination. And from 2004, I began to study marine biology in the Institute of Oceanology and got my PhD degree in 2009. My path to my current role is very simple. After getting my PhD degree, I have stayed in my mentor's uh, laboratory as a researcher uh, till now. So you did marine biology at master's level Before that, did you have any interest in the sea or in marine life? Uh, Not always. (laughs) I grew up in Land City. I never saw a live seaweed in early days, except for some dry kelp products in the market. But like many other children, I always have a dream to see and feel the big ocean and also the marine life. I remember I watched a documentary film and I'm fascinated by the amazing, beautiful and diverse marine organisms. 
Uh, also, I think I cultivated my interest in civics gradually with my research. Now I feel I'm very lucky because I'm doing what I'm interested in. Yeah, so so it sounds like it was an interest that you had in theory, but you were very lucky that you, when you got into the role, you discovered you really loved it. It, it wasn't just a childhood idea. It was, yeah, yeah. It was actually a good idea. <laughs> yeah, you're right. As I mentioned at the beginning, we focus mostly on terrestrial plants and seaweed is a completely different thing. So maybe we could just start by asking you to give us a little explanation of how are seaweeds and terrestrial plants related? You know, are are they even in the same taxonomic kingdom? Uh, Yeah, well, uh, I will give a quick overview of the uh, similarity and difference between them. Seaweeds or macroalgae can generally be divided into red, green, and brown categories. Green algae and land plants are very close in evolution, and we can call them green plants. Although red seaweeds are a little bit distant, they and green plants belong to the same kingdom, Archaea plastida. In comparison, brown algae are very different. They belong to stramenopause or heterocounts. In this sense, we even should not uh, call brown algae plants. They share uh, some similarities to land plants. For example, they are both photosynthetic and uh, multicellular. While the differences uh, include the carbon storage metabolism, a cell wall component, among others. Many of the people listening will have eaten seaweed maybe in sushi or as a bit of garnish, but not really thought of it being um, something that's harvested or eaten in in large quantities. So can you tell me about the seaweed industry in China? What kind of seaweeds? How is it used? Could you give me an overview? Definitely. Uh, China has a a very, as you said, China has a very giant seaweed cultivation in industry with total production of about 2.5 million tons. Is that dry weight or harvested weight? Uh, this is dry weight. This is the data of dry weight. Uh, commercially important brown seaweeds mainly include two kelp species, uh, the Latin name Sacrina japonica and Undaria. Their Japanese name, uh, maybe people are more familiar, kombu and wakame. Uh, and the red uh, commercial series mainly includes uh, piropia and grassy lariopsis. Uh, we cultivate kelps on longlands. Uh, Sacrina japonica is mainly farmed in three provinces, Fujian, Shandong, and Liaoning. Ondari pinatifida is mainly cultivated in Liaoning and Shandong provinces. Sacrina japonica is mainly consumed as food, not only due to the supplement of iodine in earlier days, which is indispensable for thyroid function, but also due to its flavor and other nutrition in general. Uh, Strikingly, a large portion is also used to feed abalone. Oh, seafood delicacy. Yeah, which also has a big market in China. A small fraction is used for extraction of alginate, fucoidin, and other compounds and uh, chemicals, which can be applied in pharmaceutical and the cosmetic industry. Uh, Ondara used to be an export-oriented product, uh, mainly exported to Japan. 
but now it has become more and more popular in China uh, because of its tasty flavor and uh, benefits to human health. You said that there are three types of seaweed, red, green and brown. And today we're going to focus mainly on kelp, which is a brown algae, and specifically Saccharina japonica and Undaria pinifetada. But before we do, are green and red algae commercially used at the moment as well? I know that red algae is being investigated as a feed additive for livestock to reduce methane emissions, but I don't know whether there are other uses for red or green algae commercially. Uh, yeah, um, for red algae, there are a lot of uh, commercial use. As you have said, sushi. Sushi is a product of uh, piropia. It is the, the most uh, valuable red series in the world, I think. There are other red algae, for example, gracilaria. They are used for extraction of phycocolloid, for example, agar or kerrigan. There's a country uh, producing a large quantity of red seaweed. This country is Indonesia. Tropical red seaweeds, um, the, the, the uh, production of tropical red seaweeds is very huge in this country. And is the majority of global seaweed production and consumption in Northeast and East Asian countries? Yeah. Uh, in fact, there's a large-scale commercial seaweed production in Japan, Korea, and China. And the commercial seaweeds in these three countries are almost the same because of the overlapping latitudes, uh, intimate culture and uh, economic exchange between these countries. And all being produced in the same way with these long lines, or is that just for kelp? Uh, just for kelp, because piropia, the seaweed used for producing sushi, they are cultivated on different systems. Uh, we use nets to cultivate this kind of seaweed. Thank you. That's really helpful to get a good overview of um, where seaweed is being grown and consumed and why. So the two species that we're talking about... Um, I'm curious about how you go about breeding them. So for starters, what is the life cycle of kelp? How do they go about reproducing? What does that mean for breeding? So let's start with what is the life cycle? Yeah, life cycle is very important. Before we conduct breeding, we must know exactly what the life cycle of this series. Uh, so the kelp has a biphysic life cycle alternating between separates and free-living diploid sporophytes and haploid gametophytes. Sporophytes are what we can see in the wild with big thalli, and the gametophytes are very tiny filaments. We can only see them under a microscope. When sporophytes become mature, they go through meiosis and release zoospores. The zoospores attach to hard substrates and germinate to form gametophytes. Uh, males and females are half and half. They produce sperms and eggs, respectively. After the eggs are fertilized by sperms, young sporophytes are produced. This is the life cycle of cap species. Uh, and I understand they can also reproduce asexually. Is that correct? Yeah, but usually uh, reproduce sexually and under some stressful condition or if the female cannot find a male counterpart, they go through uh, asexual uh, life cycle like parthenogenesis. But uh, asexual life cycle is not very usual in nature. 
Many of our listeners will be familiar with the process of plant breeding on the land, but how do you go about collecting the gametophytes and ensuring you get a control cross when you're dealing with plants in the water? Similar to land plants, there are two major breeding methods for kelp, selection and cross or hybridization. For uh, selection uh, breeding methods, we don't need to collect gametophyte first. We just perform selection by choosing parental sporophytes with desirable trees and getting the next generation just uh, through mixing the spores. Uh, with regard to cross or hybridization, we must first establish gametophyte clone cultures. Then we are able to cross between a pair of male and female gametophytes. In this way, we can fully take advantage of hybrid vigor, that is heterosis in biological terms. And how do you isolate those gametophytes? How do you, do you have to literally, you know, use a microscope to do it, or do you can you collect them in a in a net or a bag or something? Yeah, yes, we must uh, complete uh, this job at the lab. After sporophytes mature, we collect them and uh, take them back to our lab and release zoospores. And we usually use petri dishes in lab to collect zoospores. And we collect them in low density. And after they become gametophytes, we can select them uh, individually. So we can take them out and put uh, every single one to a tube. So every single one is called a gametophyte clone because they come from one single source ball. So it's quite labor-intensive. It needs a lot of work, a lot of specialists. Yeah, 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 it needs a lot of work, yeah. Yes. And who is doing this breeding? Is it just, you know, you're a, you're a researcher, but are private companies doing the breeding? And do you, do you work with other organizations? Uh, for cultivation, usually the private companies will do this job. Uh, for breeding uh, varieties, I think uh, it's cooperation between private companies and breeding scientists from universities or institutes. I think this is uh, similar in Japan, Korea and China. You're listening to Plant Breeding Stories, brought to you by PBS International, world leaders in pollination control. We're exploring the personal stories behind people who've dedicated their careers to plant breeding, helping us to more productive plants, greater food security, and more sustainable agriculture. Now, back to the podcast. You painted a picture of these very early crosses happening in Petri dishes, but then in terrestrial plants, you would go from a single plant to maybe a plot trial to maybe, you know, a field. So you have to do the process of scaling up. How does that work in these kelps? How do you scale up from a single plant that looks promising to larger quantities for trials, for testing? Uh, there are two ways to, to breed and cultivate individuals. One way is uh, from gametophytes. As you have said, it is very uh, laborious. We must uh, select uh, different gametophyte clone cultures and then propagate in order to get enough biomass quantity. And after that, we cross female and male uh, gametophytes to get enough individuals for cultivation. But there's another simple way, and that's, that is uh, what we usually do uh, in nowadays. We usually uh, just release 
zoospores. The zoospores uh, we attach to the collection. The collection is a kind of system with a frame wrapped up with strings. So the zoospores will attach to the strings and uh, they grow into gametophytes just on the strings. And after that, male and female gametophytes just cross and generate the next generation of sporophytes. This is a much easier way to, to do breeding and cultivation subsequently. Okay. It's, it's blowing my mind. It's, it's, there's so many similarities, but so many differences. <laughs> yeah, it's... The important question I haven't asked so far is what traits are you breeding for? You know, you're doing, we, we understand a little bit about the mechanics, but what are the goals of, of, a, of your breeding program? The breeding uh, purpose mostly for higher biomass and larger size. In addition, chemical composition, stress tolerance, and late maturity are also targeted. For Ondaria, we also breeding for smooth and flexible fronts because this kind of individual uh, is uh, of high commercial value in the market. Why is late maturity something that's important? Uh, I think uh, late maturity is uh, related to yield. If uh, the civet can grow for long periods, their biomass is uh, kind of uh, higher. And, and also stress tolerance, you mentioned. Um, one of the things I imagine that might be a growing challenge is the consequence of climate change, having warm oceans, perhaps more acid um, you know, a lower pH in the ocean. Is that the kind of stress tolerance that you're thinking of? Yeah, I mean uh, stress tolerance uh, by tolerance to high temperature, low pH or changing environment across different kinds of environmental conditions. Yeah, all kinds of stress tolerance. All kinds of stress. Do do you ever um, take account of the taste, like the breed? You know, some some breeding programs like for berries or things like that, which are for human consumption, they have tasting panels and people are feeding back about the flavor or the texture. Is that something that ever features into your breeding programs? Uh, the the taste the taste is uh, I think is too complicated for civet breeding now because there's a short very short breeding history for civets. So yeah, maybe uh, this is the next target of our breeding, but now it is too complicated. <laughs> There's lots of work to do without worrying about that. <laughs> yeah, this, yeah, 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 yeah. One of the things that I was thinking about is when you have these improved varieties that you're putting out into um, production, commercial production, they're going out on these long lines. I wondered if there was any risk to those improved genetics escaping into the wild, into the natural environment. Is that something that, is it a problem? Is it something that people think about, or is it actually of no consequence? Yeah, uh, good question. I think uh, there's a possible risk um, uh, if the variety escape from the farm to nature. In China, few people consider this uh, question uh, because we, I think we don't have the protection uh, standpoint now 
But for Western people and for especially for Japanese uh, people, they uh, protect they protect the uh, natural populations very strictly. They cannot transplant one uh, natural population to another population, and they avoid the variety escaping from the farm to the to, to the wild. Uh, I think yeah, the risk. Uh, uh, exists. For instance, if the varieties uh, grow faster, once they escape to the wild, it may be outcompete the natural population. This will threaten the existence of natural population. And uh, it will also uh, homogenize genetic variations and reduce genetic diversity of the species. Mm, I think this is the risk of escaping of the variety. But how do you control that? Being in the sea, surely a lot is washing in and out with the currents. Is it is it actually possible to control an introduced variety? Uh, yeah, as I have mentioned, in Europe, I think there are some regulations. If they conduct cultivation, they must cultivate local population. They cannot uh, introduce another population for cultivation. So I think this is a method to avoid genetic pollution. Another uh, more feasible way is to expand the use of uh, hybrid varieties because some hybrid varieties cannot reproduce in nature. So we can avoid hybridization between varieties and uh, natural populations. And moving from the ecological risk of hybrids escaping into the wild, what about the intellectual property risk? If a lot of time, money, and energy has gone into developing a variety, then it, and then it just spreads on the current. Well, how do you control the intellectual property rights in it? Are there intellectual property rights in these varieties that you're developing? Yeah, there are intellectual property, uh, and the people in China realize the importance of uh, intellectual property. So when we successfully bred a new variety, we get a certificate from Chinese Agriculture Ministry. But in spite of that, people usually don't comply with the regulations. So by this way, we cannot protect intellectual property very efficiently. I think the most feasible or efficient way to protect intellectual property is to expand the use of hybrid varieties. As I have mentioned, we can just protect the male and female parental gametophytes of the hybrid variety, just like the elite seeds of maize or rice. Series growers must come back to us for the original F1 hybrid seedlings. Yeah, because uh, only the F1 hybrid, hybrid seedlings are superior. Uh, okay, so every year they have to come back for a bit like a, a grower of hybrid corn has to come back for the seed every year. It's the same principle for the hybrid seaweeds. Yeah, you're, you're right. Interesting, yeah. And, and that leads on to... Whether you see any crossovers with the terrestrial plant breeding world, whether you think there are any opportunities for collaboration between breeders on the land and breeders in the sea. Yes, uh, absolutely. In fact, uh, civet breeding is at its infancy if compared to land crops breeding. 
Uh, in fact, we learn a lot of breeding strategies and uh, methods from land plants. We learn directly from land crops, uh, in fact. I think we should look for more opportunities for collaboration with uh, land crop breeding scientists. What do you think are the big trends in seaweed breeding that you anticipate? Uh, well, I think uh, genomic selection and gene editing are two big trends for series. Uh, fortunately, genomes of several series have been sequenced, and uh, this is an important step towards exploring uh, genomic inf information for more efficient breeding in series. Is that something that your lab is doing, or is that something for the future? I think it's for the future, but uh, we just uh, sequenced a genome of uh, Ondari pinatifida uh, last year. So not too far in the future then? Not too far, but uh, difficult. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You've given me a really good overview of um, this whole world that I knew nothing about prior to our conversation. And so it's been really interesting. But just circling back to you and your motivations, um, I'm wondering when you have difficult times, what is it that keeps you going? When when you hit a problem, when things go wrong, tell me about that. What keeps you going? Mm, because I'm uh, interested and uh, in what I'm doing and I have passion. When things get tough, I believe uh, things are going to be fine if I persist. Also, interest is the best teacher. So I think passion, belief and interest are all the motivation that drives me through the tough things. Do you think that the future of um, seaweed as a crop is bright? Do you think there's a good future? Because if nothing else, I understand the nutrition value is very high, the carbon sequestration value is very high. It feels like it should have a, a big growth future. Yes, I think the future of civics is bright. Uh, in early days, only Asian countries uh, focus on cultivation industry of civics, but now more and more people from Europe, from America, they realize the value of cultivating civics because civics, uh, just you have mentioned, have a lot of benefits, nutrition, carbon sequestration. I, th I, think, I think that that's it. <laughs> So my final question is to ask you, do you have any messages for the terrestrial plant breeding world? Anything you want to share with or make sure that the terrestrial plant breeding world knows about marine plants? Oh, <laughs> um, seaweed breeding is very young. It is a young sub subject. So... I know some uh, very excellent breeding scientists of land rocks and in fact our teachers in breeding subjects. So I think I just look forward to more collaborations uh, with land crop breeding science scientists. I think your program uh, is mainly focused on uh, terrestrial plant breeding. Maybe uh, very few people are interested in civics, but I suggest people focus more on this kind of uh, amazing marine life. They are very beautiful and diverse. I suggest more people came in contact with civics. Excellent. 
So this has been such an interesting conversation. Thank you so much for your time today. Associate Professor of Marine Biology, Tifeng Shan of the Chinese Academy of Sciences. Thank you very much indeed. My pleasure. It's really my honor to be here to share what I know about series. You've been listening to Plant Breeding Stories by PBS International, and I'm your host, Hannah Senior. Plant breeding is a pretty specialist podcast topic, which can make it difficult for people who share our interest in this kind of thing to find it. So if you've enjoyed the podcast, recommend it to your friends and colleagues, and please help others in the plant science community to find it by rating this episode and subscribing to the series. I'd love to hear from you if you want to suggest people you'd like me to interview. You can contact me on Twitter at PBSint or on Instagram at PBS underscore int. Until next time, stay well.